0: Hello everyone, this is Jada speaking. I hope you enjoy my lovely Dad's podcast. Yeah, that's right everyone, I'm resorting to getting my kids involved to try and bring some cuteness to the podcast. This is episode 11 of the Mimetic Exegete Podcast and today we're going to look at John chapter 5 verses 1-16, to which is the third sign which Jesus performs in John's Gospel. So this passage is particularly interesting because if you have a Bible in front of you, you can cast your eyes down this text and notice that verse 4 is missing. So why is it not there? What happened to it? Did it fall off the page? Did they forget to print it? Well, there's a little bit of history here, so bear with me and I'll try to breeze through without making this too complicated. In the earliest English translations of our Bibles, verse 4 was there. But they were based on a certain manuscript and a certain tradition which included this little explanation within the passage. But in time scholars discovered other manuscripts and other traditions which textual critics believe are actually earlier than the manuscripts which include verse 4 the idea is that these are closer to the original text of John's gospel and if you're reading an NIV or an ESV for example these translations are based on those older texts which do not include verse 4. So that's why if you've got your Bible open in front of you now there probably isn't a verse 4 in there. But verse 4 does perform an important function. Without it this text is difficult to understand, and so we can understand why a later hand might have put verse 4 in there. As we go through, you'll see what I mean, so let's read from verse 1. After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is, in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for thirty-eight years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been sick for a long time, he said, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked." So that's without verse 4 in there. And it raises a whole lot of questions. Why is everyone sitting by this pool? Why is this man concerned about the water being stirred up? Why is there an urgency for him to get in the pool when the water's stirred up? Let me read this little addition which someone's added at a later date, which fills in some of those details for us. So the people by the pool were waiting for the movement of the water. Verse 4. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he has. So verse 4, even though it's absent in a lot of Bibles, fills in a bit of detail. Is that actually what's going on in this passage? It makes sense. Who knows? It comes from a later author, so we don't actually know. But let's run with it for now, because it does fill in the details. And it gives us something to work with. It gives us a little bit of an explanation why everyone's there and why this man's so anxious about getting in the water when it's stirred up. So I want to make some quick observations about this passage. First, the man lays by the pool because everyone else is doing it. Notice that he's been laying there for a long time and he knows that his chances are hopeless. He explains to Jesus that he can't get into the pool quick enough and others always beat him to it. Yet he's still there. Why? Well he's there for exactly the same reason that he ended up there in the first place. Quite simply because everyone else is there. So consider how a legend like this stirring up of the pool water might get started. So imagine someone comes to the pool. They have a fever and the cool water eases their symptoms. They stay close to the pool. They bathe in it regularly. In time, this person recovers because this person doesn't understand germ theory or microbiology or how viruses work, they attribute the healing to this pool's magical power. They then go and tell all their friends and their friends celebrate and lord the healing powers of this pool. Then other people who are sick hear about this and they, they wanna be well too, so they go and imitate the actions of that first person. They think if I can go to that pool too, I can become like them, I can be whole. So this is a mimetic process. First one person does it, then others come and imitate it because they want to be well too. Now if you think this sounds strange or naive, let's give an example of how this might work in our lives. So imagine you go to a cafe, it's packed with people. But there's a cafe just next door, which is pretty much empty. You tell yourself that all the people are there because this place serves the best coffee. Maybe it's got the best service, but for some reason you assume that everyone is there because this is the best place to go. But it's not necessarily the case because everyone is thinking exactly the same thing you are. Let me spell it out for you. The first customer that morning went to the shop because they liked the umbrella there. And they thought that's a comfy seat there. I might sit there. It looks like a good place to read my book. Then some of her friends who are walking past said hello and they decided to join her for a coffee. All of a sudden, you've got a handful of people there laughing, having a good time. The next person that walks past the coffee shop is confronted with a choice. Do I visit the empty coffee shop? which looks a bit dead and lifeless at the moment? Or do I go to the other one where these people are laughing and enjoying their morning? The man sees these five friends and thinks, yeah, I wanna be like them, I'm going to that coffee shop. This process gets repeated again and again. And as more and more people come to the one coffee shop, this coffee shop draws more and more customers. Sure, some people resist the mimetic pull, and they go to the coffee shop next door. Maybe they're in a hurry and they refuse to wait 20 minutes for a coffee, but all the while they wonder what they're missing. Finally, you come along and you've got to choose which one you'll go to, the full coffee shop or the empty one next door. You feel the mimetic pull and try to justify this impulse by telling yourself that the full shop is popular because it serves the best coffee or it's got the best service. You view the crowd as proof that the busy cafes is the best one to go to. But now we know that all those people are there because of the mimetic pull, which started with that first person who decided to sit under the umbrella. Who knows, perhaps the first customer tomorrow will go to the other coffee shop and their friends will come and join them. And perhaps that'll become the busy overpopulated coffee shop while the one you're currently sitting in today is empty. A similar thing's happening here in the pool in John chapter 5. People keep coming to the pool because others are doing the exact same thing. There must be something to it, right? After all, why would all these people be here if the pool wasn't magical? So, anyway, let's get back to this text. In chapter 5, the hope of healing draws more and more of the sick and infirm to the pool. Some recover from their infirmities and some do not. Now, not everyone who jumps into the pool recovers. Why? In time, a mythical explanation is developed and circulated about an angel who stirs up the water's surface to explain why the pool heals some people but not others. This explanation allows the pool to retain its mimetic pull, even though numerous failed healings suggest that the pool may not be magical after all. Everyone wants to be that lucky person who is healed when the water is stirred. The pool becomes like a magical lottery, which trades on the desperation of these victims. When they think it might all be a hoax, they turn around and see that everyone else is here. What if they move and miss it, especially if they've already been hanging out for a long time already? You see, the more longer they've been there, the more they've invested in this hope. They don't want to be that guy who shovels hundreds of dollars into a slot machine only to walk away and hear the clinking of coins as someone else collects their winnings. So everyone gathers and stays around the pool hoping that they'll be the lucky one, and that today might be their lucky day. Why? Because everyone else is doing it. If people gave up and started to leave the pool, others would follow, but as long as they remain, others will be drawn in to that same hope. This story warns about how mimetic forces can powerfully shape our perception of reality. Just as I assumed the busiest café served the best coffee, so the man in this story believed the myth surrounding the pool's healing abilities because everyone else believed it, or at least it seemed that they did. Think about all the things we believe. Most of our beliefs are communal. And what I mean by that is we believe things because we're part of a community. We learnt those things from our community and our community reinforces those beliefs. Every now and then we may question one of those beliefs, but this brings us into direct conflict with the mindset and world of our social groups. Many people reassure themselves that their group is correct when they have doubts. Others may pursue their questions further, but when they do, they risk alienating themselves from the community. And That risk of alienation is so powerful that it motivates them to push their doubts aside and stay faithful to the community's narrative. The power of the community over their truth helps explain why people are quite logical at times. So let me ask you, have you ever had a discussion or conversation with someone, and even though you've pointed out how totally irrational their beliefs are, they still remain convinced? You've got to think about the role of community and what stakes it bears for this person. Perhaps this person's found a welcoming community. Consider someone, for example, who believes the earth is flat. They've found this welcoming home in the flat earth society. But in order to retain that community, they've got to retain their belief that the earth is flat. Now, more than that, this community tells them that the earth is flat and that the rest of the world is involved in a conspiracy to convince them that the earth is in fact spherical. When you argue with this individual... You reinforce this narrative and you confirm, at least in their mind, that the earth is flat. Because you, they say, look, here's evidence. Here's this person who's trying to convince me that the earth is spherical. Obviously, my narrative's true. Here's one of these conspirators who's trying to convert me to their side. So my point is that our conception of reality is strongly influenced by the mimetic pull of our community. And for this reason, we need to be careful about who we judge. And when we think others have crazy beliefs, maybe it's helpful to step back and have a little bit of empathy. We might look at this story, for example, and think, man, that's crazy. An angel coming down, stirring the water. Come on. But who knows? If we can just stop and think about it, maybe our community is the crazy one, and maybe we've been conditioned by mimetic thoughts to think these ideas are sensible. Anyway, let me move on to my second point. Jesus tells this man to pick up his mat and walk, and he does so. Often, like the man in this story, we're confronted with a task or a role which seems overwhelming to us. We feel helpless, paralyzed. We're like this guy lying by the pool waiting for someone to rescue us. In this story, Jesus enters into the man's darkness and shines God's creative light. For John, Jesus is God's creative wisdom breaking through into our darkness and futility, bringing healing and hope. Even in the darkest nights, the hope remains that God's creative power will break through at any moment. The challenge for us is to walk one foot after the other. We might be unsure of how things will turn out. Maybe it's scary. We might even fail. Nevertheless, if we want to see God's creative power breaking through into our darkness, Jesus challenges us to stop wallowing in despair, get up, and walk. In each of the three signs we've seen in John's Gospel, someone has had to take that first step. The servants at the wedding had to draw out the water and take it to the master of the feast. The royal official had to trust Jesus and walk home, believing that his son would be okay. And in this story, the man has to pick up his mat and walk. Breakthroughs begin with us taking the first step, whatever that may be. So let's read on to verse 16. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath! It is not lawful for you to take up your bed and walk. But he answered them, And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. We're told that the Jewish leaders seek to kill Jesus because he heals the man on the Sabbath. Yet again, in this instant, Jesus is refusing to dance to the tune of the prevailing religious order. You see, in John's Gospel, Jesus is presented as the unique Son of God who imitates no one. As such, Jesus is immune. To the mimetic forces which reinforce the Jewish leader's communal role. For the Jews, Sabbath observance was extremely important. Yet even though everyone else in the community accepted this communal norm as an important identity marker and something which the Jews held sacred, Jesus refuses to keep the Sabbath. Again and again in the Gospels, Jesus breaks the Sabbath law. Breaking the Sabbath was a huge deal in Jewish culture. Scholars have referred to the Sabbath as sacred time, as opposed to sacred space, like the tabernacle or the temple. If you broke the Sabbath, that was just as offensive, just as disrespectful as going in and wrecking the temple, which is what Jesus does in chapter 2. So when we come to this episode and Jesus breaks the Sabbath, He's doing something similar to what he did in chapter 2 when he wrecked the temple, and the Jews are just as offended by his actions. From a mimetic perspective, Jesus is setting himself apart from the Jewish religious establishment. Rather than imitating the practices which define the Jewish people's identity, Jesus plots his own course, a course which could eventually lead to his death. There's commands in the Bible that if someone breaks the Sabbath, they're to be stoned to death. So when the Jewish leaders seek to kill Jesus, they do have a scriptural justification for doing so. Now let's think about this story from the man's perspective. Jesus tells him to take up his mat and walk. He's unsure, but he stammers to his feet and takes his first step. He's amazed. He can walk. He can't believe it. He's had a breakthrough. He looks up. see Jesus, but he's gone. He feels alone. What does he do now? And now the doubts start to creep in. Notice the Jewish leaders question the man's actions, and Jesus is nowhere to be seen. Sometimes getting up and walking can feel like that. You might stand up and take your first steps out of darkness. Maybe you start a new business, a new relationship or community group, and you're excited about the new possibilities. But others come out of the woodworks to voice their concerns. Who told you this was a good idea? Have you done the right thing? What if it fails? What then? What will you do? Perhaps you might even ask yourself these questions. You look up to see Jesus for some encouragement or affirmation, but he's nowhere to be seen. You're tempted to turn back to the pool and join everyone else. Even though it's dark, even though it's hopeless, it's familiar. And somehow it seems less scary than what you're doing at the moment. What do you do? Well, you've got to keep walking. You've got to resist the mimetic forces which threaten to draw you back into that darkness. That's what the man in the story does. The man was in the temple when we pick up the story. He was probably offering a sacrifice in gratitude for his healing. And Jesus does eventually show up. You see, when you're in the struggle, it's a dark, lonely, scary place. You've just got to take those first steps, and you wonder if you've made the right decision. But if you continue through that place of doubt, there is a light at the end of the dark tunnel. If you just keep going, putting one foot in front of the other, you'll eventually reach the place where this man is, a place of gratitude and thanksgiving. And that is where Jesus shows up again. Now let's have a look at what Jesus says. He says to the man, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse might happen to you. What is Jesus saying here? Is he implying that the man's paraplegia was a direct result of personal sin? Some think it is, but I don't think so, because as we'll see in John chapter 9, Jesus seems to rebut this type of feeling, which is common in his day. There's other texts in Luke where Jesus seems to rebut it. And the Bible as a whole seems to oppose this idea that people are sick or poor because they've sinned. The whole book of Job is about his friends who hold this same assumption and they challenge him. In his suffering, they say, there must be some secret sin that you've committed, confess so that you don't die. But Jesus is saying something different here. Notice he implies that the man's sin may lead to something worse than his paraplegia. What could be worse? Let's revisit the story, let's think about the man and his situation, and then we'll talk about this question from a mimetic perspective. So in the story, the man's sin was that he succumbed to the mimetic pressure of the people by the pool. Remember the man followed all the other infirm people to the pool, and he was deceived concerning the pool's healing powers because everyone else believed it. Of course it must be true. Look, they're all by the pool. Why would all these people be there if it was a hoax? Jesus seems to be warning the man about this pattern in his life, and he's challenging to leave this old life of mimetic slavery behind. You see, this man is on the mimetic treadmill, and on that treadmill we're always striving, always hoping to find fulfillment, but never achieving it. That was the man's experience by the pool. He was lying there, hoping to get healed, but he knew his cause was hopeless. Nevertheless, he stayed, he remained, even though someone else always jumped into the pool before he could after the waters were stirred. Even though it was a hopeless pursuit, for some reason, he just kept on that treadmill. What could be worse than paraplegia? Being perpetually frustrated and unfilled by a life spent on that mimetic treadmill. Always striving, always searching, always straining, but never getting anywhere. This man, for the first time, has been able to walk in 38 years. He's had a breakthrough. But how will he live going forward? Will he just get back on the mimetic treadmill and imitate someone else who he selects as a model? Will he find someone else or some other object to covet, to strain and struggle after? Or will he realize the folly of the mimetic process and opt out of this system altogether? Jesus challenges us all to get off that mimetic treadmill, to stop looking around, to see, looking for objects, looking for a new identity to fulfill us. And he points us towards a better life in the kingdom of god well thank you everyone for joining me thank you to jada for the intro remember you can continue the conversation on our facebook page the Mimetic Exege. so i hope to see you there until the next time may the lord bless you and keep you